John Vivanco has been a professional remote viewer for over 25 years and he's worked with different corporate and government clients. And because of his success, he has experienced some harassment for different remote viewing organizations that he has been involved with. More recently, he's the host of two shows on Rise TV, Chronicles of a Psychic Spy and Metaphysical. And today we're going to be talking about Antarctica, the Shroud of Turin and the Inner Earth. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome to Exopolitics Today, John. Good to have you hey. back. Good to see you, Michael. Yeah, it's been a few months, and I know you've been very busy. Uh, uh, watch some of your shows on Rise TV, so you're, you're quite prolific in your output. Oh, yeah, constant constant filming. You know, it's it's um, in this world that we're in, I mean, we're, we're, we're covering a lot of the same stuff. Um, I, I feel like there's just such a huge hole for people in general on information. Um, and it's just, it's just gotta be filled somehow, you know, whether people believe remote viewing data or not, uh, at least it, it feels a little bit more stable than just conjecture. Yeah. What I'm finding is, is people really appreciate, um, having different perspectives. I, I'm, I'm finding that on my show, on my uh, Exopolitics Today, uh, program, a, a lot of people appreciate me bringing on guests that don't necessarily agree with one another but they value the different perspectives because, you know, people like to exercise discernment and, you know, rather than just being fed one particular, you know, line of thinking. Right. You know, you got to take everything with a grain of salt, even remote viewing data. Um, you know, as far as I go, since I've been doing this so long and have had so many real world successes and the, the operational type procedures that, that I used in the past when it comes to <clears throat> business or governmental institutions on basically real real world stuff we apply that methodology to what we do on more esoteric things and while you can't get that like one-to-one -one ratio of feedback um, on the esoteric stuff you can still based off of your past history in the successful projects on real world things understand that it's more of a reality what you're getting in the remote viewing data than not so just generally speaking i know you began working professionally uh with different corporate and government clients over the years and and then you know you experienced and we discussed that in the first interview where you experienced some harassment went away and came back and now, now you have these shows on rise tv do, do you still do do you still have some corporate clients that are, are wanting to have kind of re professional remote viewing done? Is that kind of like a an yeah. thing? Yeah. So, so I will get that. Uh, I will get approached on occasion. Um, and I'm not that interested in doing that stuff. <clears throat> I've pulled away a lot of, from a lot of that stuff, even when people do step forward on the corporate side, but then sometimes I will work with them depending on the project. Um, also one thing that actually, frequently happens is, is getting contacted by um, people who are in the, uh, let's just say they're 
their people in the detective side, the detective world, or or counterintelligence type stuff that has to do with political climates or um, terrorist type situations. That kind of stuff, every once in a while, I still get approached um, to do. And most of the time I, you know, push back on it because I just don't have an interest in doing it. That stuff is just a black hole of nothingness when you start working in that. And that's what I did in the past. And it's just not interesting. And, and it's a lot of it's very controlled. Right. I, I guess they don't want you to kind of learn about whether or not the targets that they're wanting information on are, are real or not. And they want your info, but they don't want to give you any feedback. Yeah, th there's no tea time talks, you know. Um, the, the What's actually quite, this is really interesting. So when we were working with the FBI back around 9-11, after that whole thing, um, they wanted us to look at future terrorist attacks and on U.S. soil. Um, but we, okay, so if you remember, there were the, uh, the anthrax attacks back then. There was just this sort of subset of attacks that were supposedly happening, I think mostly on the East Coast around D.C. of anth anthrax being sent. So we, we took it upon ourselves as an independent think tank to look into that and then relay that information to our, our contact, the person we were working with. And when we did, we got shut down so fast, I can't even tell you. It was just like, nope, you are not going there. Do not work on that. And the reason why was because the data was pointing towards a military institution that was connected into that specifically. So... Okay. It's not it's not it's not a fun thing working in these in these realms, especially when you're about especially when you're about opening this up to people and and uncovering secrets, because this is it's like it's like you go into these locations, into these work work situations with these people, and that's all they have are secrets. So it's difficult to work in that realm. Right. Well, I know that there were some people that were very accurate with uh, their kind of analysis of, of some of these classified programs in some of these locations. And um, so I wanted to start by uh, bringing up some of these people. Uh, one was Ingo Swan. And, and in your metaphysical show on Rise TV, you, you talk about uh, Ingo Swan uh, doing a remote viewing of Alaska, and then actually being taken there and seeing certain things. And so, yeah, what, what was it that Ingo Swan saw? What happened? Uh, I know there was a, a, a spacecraft there draining a lake, for, draining water from a lake. Uh, there was a mysterious axle rod that got him to look at at a, at a target in Alaska. So, yeah, what, what was going on with Ingo Swan? Yeah, that's a fascinating story. Ingo was a was quite the character. He um he was taken into a deep black project by this man named Axelrod in order to remote view specific coordinates on the moon at first. And and for Ingo and the way he portrays it, this was a huge eye-opening event for him that literally scared the living heck out of him because he'd never really thought about aliens being on the moon. So he came across structures um, he came across beings on the moon. And when when he started to remote view specific beings on the moon, he saw them immediately. Axelrod 
shut the remote viewing session down and asked Ingo if the beings had noticed him. Um, Ingo didn't know whether they noticed him or not because it was so fast when Axelrod pulled him off. And then Axelrod came to basically warn him that they have like telepathic abilities where they can sense if you're there. And of course, you know, we've run into the same thing. I've had experiences where beings have been aware of us uh, remote viewing them. And then we have somewhat negative consequences because of it. But that whole thing makes you wonder, you know, why did, how did Axelrod know that there's danger in that specific thing? You know, you know, how did he know that if somebody remote views them, that these things are going to come after him? So yes, I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax where, where there was, uh, where we had remote viewed, you know, why Axelrod knew that. And it, it was specifically that he was running a team, um, another team of remote viewer psychics on those structures on the moon. The people lingered, the viewers lingered, getting more information on these beings. Then later on, there was a very negative experience of uh, destruction, basically like our remote viewing data described, some buildings basically being destroyed um, in a, it was like a remote military base where they were working out of. So that's why he pulled Ingo off. So then later on, and this freaked Ingo out. Now, now he didn't know anything about Axelrod's previous experience, I don't think. That's us remote viewing it. Um, later on, Axelrod took him, Ingo, to a remote location in Alaska where they basically flew in an airplane, private plane all night, all night landed at a remote airstrip. Um, they had him, you know, they had him blindfolded basically, so he didn't know where he was going. They drove for miles on a dirt road, then hiked and arrived just before dawn, and they were hiding behind a rock. And Axelrod told him to look over the lake, you know, as the as that starting to get slowly brighter and brighter outside. So this craft appeared above the lake, as Ingo describes it, and it started sucking up water from the lake. There was some kind of sound of around them, like likely a deer or something snapping a twig. And the thing just started shooting out what Ingo described as lasers, just firing out at where the sound was coming from. They ducked down and then hightailed it out of there as fast as they could, because apparently this thing would target any biological life and basically just destroy it. And that was his experience that he claims that in uh, the penetration book. And so we had remote viewed that. It's not like you can actually get more information on it. Um, when you remote view it, you can basically just, because he basically puts all the information out there. Um, but we remote viewed that and our data was what he said. Like, so yes, that, that did happen. And Alaska is one of those places, you know, like Antarctica, um, where, you don't have a whole lot of human presence. Um, and so because of that, there's, there's a lot of, I would, I would just call them alien bases, you know, just to cut to the chase instead of beating around the bush, alien bases in Alaska, quite a few of them. Well, so that was important that you were able to corroborate uh, that incident. And yeah, that's described in uh, Ingo's book, uh, Penetration. Now there's another a remote viewer that Ingo kind of like uh, 
worked with uh, back in the day with uh, the Stanford Research Institute, and that is Pat Price. And he saw something under Mount Hayes, Alaska. So that was very interesting because, um, I mean, he describes seeing something, well, a base, a big base there and craft. So, yeah, what did you do regarding Pat Price's um, remote viewing of Mount Hayes, Alaska? Did you actually remote view the same base? Yeah, we have. We've, we've looked at all the locations that Pat Price has claimed. And, and in each one of those locations, I think there was four or five locations across the world that he claimed that there were alien bases at. And yes, there was there was a base in that location. And it did have to do with what he was talking about, uh, communication and monitoring, as we find a lot, a lot of these bases have to do a lot with monitoring. Um, and uh, it's not just in Mount Hayes. It's it. There are also, like you have the the idea of the dark pyramid underground near Alaska. That's another location. And now you have humans involved in that location as well, as we've seen with our RV. That that they are utilizing that place. Um, and nearby that location is another base. Then you have a location in Canada where you we found this. Literally, sometimes we work on these projects. We were looking at this one, uh, this one place called the Headless Valley in Canada, not that far from from this area, uh, east of this area, where um, a lot of uh, people have apparently shown up headless, dead, right, in this one place in Canada, and and in that location we were basically finding that uh, the people had died because of um, uh, other gold miners trying to scare people and get rid of uh, get rid of people who were going into the area to basically jump their claim. So, so that was purely terrestrial uh, for the most part on these headless people showing up dead. So we had to look at what was the most interesting thing of the area. When we looked at that, we found that near a, a, a large mining operation um, that it was acting in part as cover for um, the exploration and utilization of this very old alien monitoring base um, uh, right in the Headless Valley. Um, there was also another time when I had received coordinates from uh, a friend of mine who had there, there was there was actually this this contact e who was a very young child who was receiving coordinates and he was the recipient of these coordinates he sent them to me and they were up in alaska somewhere around mount hayes and so we looked into the coordinates and the coordinates were another base yet another base but in this base specifically it was a lot like dulce where the uh, inhabitants of this base were of the darker type and they were abducting uh, humans and animals and whatnot in order to utilize them for genetic experimentation purposes. Well, I, I remember that uh, Pat Price, after he uh, did those remote viewings, I think of Mount Hayes, Mount Zealand, Australia. There was one, I think, in South, South Africa. And uh, and I can't remember the fourth one, but he uh, soon after that died in very mysterious circumstances. So, uh, you know, can we 
conclude that Pat Price was eliminated because he was um, he knew too much about some of these classified facilities and and people just didn't want that getting out. Right. So just before he died, he had a meeting with uh, naval intelligence in Washington D.C. He flew back to um, Las Vegas where he was picked up by a friend of his. They took him to a hotel. And during that time at the hotel, when they were in the lobby, somebody bumped Pat. And then Pat went to his room. And then later on, he had a massive heart attack. Um, and so the conjecture, actually, later on, some ex-Soviet spy on his deathbed claimed that he had to go to the US to assassinate a, a psychic. Now, I don't believe that. We haven't looked at this. I don't believe that that was the case because my intuition, even though we've not remote viewed it, my intuition goes the path of, yeah, there was something that he knew too much about. Um, whether that was these UFO bases, which could be, I mean, this is of the highest classification, could be that, could also be the aspects of the remote viewing program, which goes way beyond remote viewing that he knew too much about, namely the the way these programs work is that they're very layered. When the Soviets first started developing um, their parapsychology uh, officially, like through the Ministry of Defense and the KGB, they they layered their programs into about 10 different facilities. And one of their sole intentions was to, <clears throat> to basically measure the frequencies that were, if they could capture any frequencies that were around telepathy, around any type of parapsychological things, because they they really wanted to create a, a system of communication that was non-conventional and trying to understand through electronic means what type of frequencies to telepathy and whatnot works in. And so this 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 led to some of their discoveries that we do know about, like I think the Sergeyev detector and uh, Kirillian for photography. Um, and I'm sure there are many others. And so <clears throat> when the US found out about the program, they probably pretty much instituted the same type of structured um, research units to develop all the different aspects like the Soviets were doing. And one of those things that I know the US was doing was trying to work on uh, covert uh, communication with submarines. And Pat Price was likely heavily involved in that as well. And that's why he was meeting with naval intelligence. Now, um, as I recall, the base at Mount Hayes, was that an exclusively extraterrestrial facility or was it a joint extraterrestrial human facility? Yeah, it, it could have been in the past um, strictly extraterrestrial, but these days what we find when we remote view these is that there is a big mix of humans now, and 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 they would be military industrial complex like Raytheon and whatnot um, on a very very black level working with them. I mean, this is this is the true power on this planet now, right? When you when you get into it, you're talking about the true power being these mil the military industrial complex by way of very few in individuals that control them connected into this whole alien construct. Mount Zeal in Australia is near Pine Gap. And I know that was one of the locations that uh, Pat Price also kind of identified an underground facility. So did, did you remote view that? Or did you have any data on that? Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. So <laughs> 
something funny happens when you okay pat price was likely the very first like intense psychic good psychic remote viewer that remote viewed that location and they probably recognized they knew that he did do that it's, it, it, at the very least later on because of this data that got published through intelligence services and then to the public so what happens after that is that they start to employ um, methods electronic frequency methods in order to keep psychics out right and so when we remote viewed that that specific location we literally were we call this a viewer trap where you are remote viewing and and you're you're getting sort of like weird stuff that doesn't make any sense you're getting um fractals and black holes and um and sort of like repeating patterns and it feels like you're just going in circles and circles and circles and never getting any real information um, and so when we remote viewed Mount Zeal, we went in as a group. So there's something that we use um, that's kind of like minority report where you have multiple psychics or remote viewers working all at the same time, verbalizing their data while you have a monitor collating it and asking questions of everyone as you go along. And so you go in as a group and in the group, we eventually recognized that we were in a viewer trap and they had set up this place to block or slow down psychics with all these frequencies. Um, when we had first remote viewed Skinny Bob, when you, you know, the Skinny Bob video on YouTube of the gray alien, it's like an old film that, that was supposedly leaked by Soviet intelligence. When we first remote viewed Skinny Bob, we knew that we were the first viewers in because this being was willing, and we recognized this being um, recognized us. And this being was willing to allow us in and, and somewhat communicate with us. Um, later on, it started to get annoyed with us and started to block us, like literally with its mind, frequencies with its mind. So when a viewer would view it afterwards, they would get bounced off to like a nature scene. So, so these beings and these bases have this, this capability technology and also just using the mind to knock psychics out of them. So we didn't get much when we looked at Mount Zeal because of that. Well, that's an important question is how much can psychics kind of like penetrate those protective mechanisms, whether it's uh, extraterrestrials, whether it's covert operations. I mean, there's one a remote viewing organization that claims that they can they can go anywhere and see any situation and no matter what protective shields are there they can break through it but but i know that uh, you know ingo swan said uh, described incidents where it was like it was dangerous and you had to get out and what you've described so yeah i mean you know, are there situations where no matter how good you are as a remote viewer you you need to get out or maybe you're being tricked or deceived yeah, that's another thing too. Um, you you can eventually get in. You have to be persistent. You can eventually get in. But when it comes to the danger side, it's when you're in a location that is extremely highly sensitive that you get into and you get noticed that that things can go weird for you. So for instance, there was now there's there there are these 
sightings that happen around Salt Lake City, Utah. And, and I was staying there for, for a period of time. And we had been watching these craft and whatnot flying over this mountain range that were making odd maneuvers. So we decided that we were going to look at um, where they were coming from specifically. So we, while we were looking at it, we saw the area again, it was like next to this old mine, this old mining operation in a mountain range. And on the other side of the mountain range was a, a military base that has been reported to be sort of like a new area 51. Now, when we remote viewed this location of where they were coming from, it was so close to it um, that it was, there was this sort of relationship between the two and inter interchange and exchange. And that night, I had an experience and the other person that viewed of things on the roof and then being paralyzed, right? So that specifically came from that base because they had, so there's the like more dangerous side. And I've had other experiences too, where yes, I've had things lurking around my house and coming around my house because of something that I remote viewed that was uh, extraterrestrial. So, yeah. So what, what kind of defense would you need to have as a remote viewer if you get into one of these dangerous situations? I mean, some people say, well, you know, you just say, Jesus saved me or something, or saved, or, or maybe you envisage a kind of like uh, some some kind of Merkaba vehicle around you or a bubble right. of a light around you. Um, you know, and those people have different defense mechanisms. So what, what do you do? So... <laughs> Okay, so it depends. Like, if this if it's purely astral, like if it's a purely astral type attack, um, one thing that they absolutely, absolutely hate are vibrational frequencies that go against their vibrational frequency, and that typically has to do with focusing on the heart. So, if you focus on the heart, really focus on the heart, where it begins to get warm, and you start to move that out. Those beings, when you're in the astral, will will scatter. They don't like that at all. It's it's you're you're like pissing on their parade. It's terrible for them. They hate it. Now, if it turned into physical, if it turned into physical, it's a whole different story because now you're dealing with a 3D thing, and that doesn't necessarily work. And and normally, like you for me, usually what I do if it turns physical is I go into a deeply meditative state and I just stay there and just let whatever happen, happen. That's it. Because oftentimes what happens is that you will get paralyzed and then they will manipulate you on an astral level. So, so I try to remain as clear as possible during those types of events and, and literally try not to, um, to like make them last longer or or to wake myself up completely because they'll usually do it when you're falling asleep so i don't know like specifically and i don't think there is any protection for the more physical type events that happen when they show up physically okay i gave you a, a set of coordinates um and uh, 78 degrees and uh, we can show the image uh, that those coordinates pointed to. So 78 degrees, 51 minutes, 15 seconds south, and 160 degrees, 17 minutes, 55 
minutes or seconds east, and it shows uh, there's there's a there's a 3D uh, on Google Earth. You, I, I just selected three images to show. Um, so there's Google Earth that shows what appears to, like the first image appears to show some kind of object there. Uh, the second image does the same when you do it in 2D. But then at another angle, if we go to the other images, Jazz, um, so the other image, um, again, it seems to show an object there. But then the third image, it, it, show, it seems to show a, kind of like a depression. And, and so I know essentially those coordinates, yes, yeah, so that's the third image, and it's, it seems to show a depression in the ground as opposed to objects. So again, so yeah, you want to kind of tell us what, what was it that you saw when you did the remote viewing? So, so when we looked at that, so the, like, well, the first thing that came forward is that that's a, there's that big gash in the land there. And that looked to be, according to our data, related to volcanic activity somehow formed that way. There's, a, there's, there's basically a, um, uh, a large vent there in that location. And and the area is basically Swiss cheesed with um, with uh, lava tubes, as well as um, uh, basically carving the ice out tunnels, because there's human and other activity right in that area. So when we looked at that, it literally led into like what's under the ice there and what's going on. Um, whether there was an object there, there could have been. I don't know. There may not be an object there now. And that's why we didn't necessarily get an object there. What it led into, though, is is what's like literally happening in that general area. Um, a lot of our data, interestingly enough, had some aspects that was relating to. Uh, do you know of the um, the ice cube array or the neutrino observatory? That's I think it's in the Admonson Scott or Scott Admonson base. I think that's Central Antarctica which has been theorized, actually there's a whistleblower, Eric Hecker, that spoke about it, uh, who worked for Raytheon as a firefighter uh, down in that area. Um, and he spoke a bit about that ice cube array. And it's a neutrino detector where, you know, they, they drill these holes. I'm sure your viewers are very well versed and understand what that thing is. Yeah, there you go. They, these holes, they go to like 8,000 8, feet deep and they put in these uh, DOMs, uh, digital optical modules, in order to uh, capture neutrinos, um, massless particles that actually, when they travel through the ice, they, they create a bit of radiation. And so with this observatory, they can detect neutrinos coming from anywhere and then look at the source of that to try to figure out what's going on, right? Now, what I think with this, this ice cube here, when we remote view this, specifically to try to back up Eric Hecker's claims, our remote viewing data did describe this thing as being a massive communication device back and forth to, you know, you, you know, he speaks of Gary McKinnon and that, that, that large ship that Gary McKinnon, uh, when he hacked NASA computers saw, um, he speaks of, of that specifically, but our data was more related to aliens more related to a communication system set up between humans and off-planet beings. Um, now, what I suspect in part is that this ice cube array, this specific one, is 
more on the public side, and this could have been proof of concept for this type of communication. And it appears that an aspect has moved to where you have that coordinate, right? So not just that, when you go underground in that area, what we have is, is more of a, a, a communication hub and a outpost, a base where, where there is a type of holographic type technology used in order to, to speak, to communicate with off-planet beings, as well as those other people that are involved in deep space type projects. And on top of that, we have, I mean, it even, even some of the data on the edges goes towards there being a, um, uh, a portal, that portal type technology that's being used in this location underground. And so I would imagine that we would have craft going in and out of this area quite a bit because this seemed to be somewhat of an active location um, that, that, that is incredibly, incredibly secret. Um, yeah, with the matter type transference device. Um, uh, what else was there? This, okay, so what, one thing that was interesting in the data was talking about how humans are, are literally like physically, we aren't built for this, but an aspect of us is. Humans in general, this form that we have is very compatible with moving through portals in general, moving from a portal to, from one location to another, whereas not so much this body doesn't work that well if we're traveling for long periods of time through deep space. And so what I found interesting with this data is that, you know, this is sort of a, a offshoot rabbit hole from the, from the data is that we humans could have been genetically manipulated at some point in time in order to easier traver traverse uh, through portals because portals involve specific types of frequencies, different types of frequencies for different locations. And for whatever reason, our bodies are more malleable on that front uh, in order to move through them than we are for space travel. And so some of the data started talking about this and going down that path of this is a location along with all this other stuff for moving humans through a portal based on frequencies that goes to different locations. Uh, I think you're muted. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so just to clarify here, those coordinates I gave you, 78 degrees, 51 minutes um, south, I mean, that's quite a distance away from the um, the Amundsen Scott base. That's far away. Pole. Yeah. Whereas those coordinates are pretty close to McMurdo base in Antarctica, which is the largest US base in Antarctica. I think uh, it's only about 80 kilometers uh, when I, I measured it. So, so you're saying that there is something underground there, um, and it, it may be connected, or the whatever's underground there is somehow connected to the neutrino array at the Amundsen base. Yeah, I, what I think is that the the neutrino array at Amundsen was somewhat of a proof of concept, and I because uh, our data basically said that that thing. On, on deeper levels is used as a communication device in and out <clears throat> into deep space. 
Um, specifically, that type of communication is between off-worlders, aliens on other in other locations, as well as some humans. And I I think that that's probably proof of concept. It's now more on the public side. And they moved, they built another one in that general area where you gave me those coordinates that is specifically for that. Because I literally have come to the conclusion that Antarctica, <clears throat> the whole of Antarctica is a major hub where you have huge interaction going on between beings, off-planet beings, multitudes of off-planet beings and humans. And I think that's one of the huge reasons why it's completely restricted. And I mean, you know, you think about it too. You've got like Mount Fuji can fit underneath the ice and you wouldn't see the top, right? You know, so, so you have a lot of room to work. It's like the ocean. You have a lot of room to work under there if you have the right gear tunneling equipment. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but uh, the, the person who gave me those coordinates um, is currently serving in the uh, US Army and uh, he was given these coordinates by a senior officer who wanted them to be released. So that's interesting that, that you're corroborating. And this is uh, this, uh, this Army insider, he's uh, he uses the acronym uh, JP. I've been covering him quite a bit over the last few years. And, and so this is interesting that those coordinates do match up with something there in Antarctica, very close to McMurdo base. I mean, that's a short, I mean, 80 kilometers. I think that's just a short helicopter ride. Right. So, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that is interesting. It, it, Antarctica is, you know, you, you don't only have, you know, all this current activity <clears throat> because this place has been super frozen for a very long time. You've got a lot of ancient civilization relics and remnants down there on the on the surface. Um, so, I mean, every single time that we look at anything in Antarctica, we it's an inevitability that we pick up stuff either either ancient civilization or current uh, happenings. I mean, ever since um, Operation High Jump with Admiral Byrd and routing out the Nazis down there, um, that was. We, we remote viewed that. I think we spoke of this last time. <clears throat> Routing out the Nazis that we had remote viewed. And then the problem was <clears throat> there was a huge setup already there by alien beings. And so that was where the real battle was. And it was like the, the, the Nazis were kind of engaged in the same kind of conflict that the Americans were engaged in. Um, and so at a certain point, you know, you've got the Nazis and Americans kind of working together in this context to try to understand what's going on there. And this is like before or around the time of deals being made with these extraterrestrials. And so now at this point, literally what Antarctica seems is what Eric Hecker says, it's sort of an air traffic control for the earth of alien craft. So that's interesting. So the, the, the kind of operation high jump material and, and the whole Germans or the Nazis finding these ancient bases there that, that were extraterrestrial, it kind of corroborates or matches what we were talking about earlier, like with the Alaska situation where you have these ancient extraterrestrial bases, then humans find them, and then there's kind of deals and cooperation happens. So the, the they, extraterrestrial bases morph into joint extraterrestrial human bases. So And that right. happened with the Nazis in Antarctica as well. 
Yeah. Operation yeah. Jump. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Us, you know, the people, you know, we're, we're, we're literally like one of the resources to be used, you know, the, the mass of civilian population. I mean, you look, you know, you're, you're an alien, you're coming to earth. You're going to look at what resources to use. And the people are a huge resource here. You get them to be industrious for you in all these capacities while tell, while not telling them anything. And so that really that's, the, that's where we are now, except we have a huge contingent of, of, of um, these, you know, corporations that Eisenhower warned the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about that is basically in control of all of this now and not willing to. And I think it also has to do with the, with the aliens that are interacting. They don't want to be known for whatever reason. They don't want to be known to the human population at large. So there's this, this huge layer of obfuscation. And it's funny too, to me now when we have this whole, um, UAP thing. I mean, to me, they're UFOs, but you can't call them UFOs anymore because the UFO is crazy. The UAP terminology was meant to take it out of the crazy zone so that people take it more seriously. And so you have to ask yourself, why, why do they want people to take this more seriously? No. Yeah. Well, I think the, there's, there's definitely an agenda there. Yeah. I, I, I think with the remote viewing of, of these, um, Kind of esoteric topics. I mean, it's, I find it very, and I, I know we talked about this last time, but it's very helpful for me because you often have whistleblowers, you have some leaked documents, and you have some FOIA documents that kind of support, okay, you know, whatever, whether we're talking about Alaska, Mount Hayes, underground bases, Antarctica, uh, but then you get the remote viewing, and that gives you a, a kind of fresh new source that right. just kind of gives another perspective. And uh, to me, that's fantastic. Right, exactly. And you could, you know, based on all the sources that are out there, you could just build the puzzle pieces together. I mean, and and it it is going to be something like that. It might not be exactly that, but it's going to be something like that. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Well, you know, a great example is, uh, you know, Buzz Aldrin when he talked about a monolith on, on Phobos, you know, the, right. one of the moons of Mars. You know, I mean, how do you corroborate that? I know, yeah, I know yeah. there was NASA... Um, uh, imagery of this monolith but you know apart from that well but you remote viewed it so you know what did you find when you remote viewed phobos and the monolith and what yeah what phobos is interesting that's a really really interesting i would call it a um uh, a natural spaceship basically um the, the the monolith on phobos seemed to be some type of um control center that that was um supposed to be above the surface, kind of like the pilot's area, right? In a sense. Now, when we remote viewed Phobos itself, like I remember remote viewing this myself. I was blind to it, given this as a tasking to view Phobos. And I literally, like my first visions of it, when I I, bilo I had bilocated, because bilocation can happen in remote viewing, especially with off-planet stuff. <clears throat> bilocation is when it's, it's, it's like you you literally separate from your body and you have this movement, albeit limited, uh, within whatever location you're looking at. I think like bilocation happens more often because there's less psychic noise out in space as there is here on planet Earth. And so when you remote view something else off planet, you're able to <clears throat> have this occur more often. So 
I remember the first, my first like viewings into Phobos, I bilocated and I literally ended up in what looked like a, um, it, it, it looked like a land. I was in a hollow sphere. Like I was inside of something. It was like hollow earth. It looked like hollow earth. And you literally had from one end to the other, you had, um, like landforms <clears throat> and water. So it looked, it literally looked like some kind of inner earth, hollow earth representation. And then on one side of it, which was behind me as I was looking, there was, there was a whole control area that had, um, uh, sophisticated, um, devices for operating this planetoid or this asteroid or this moon. It was <clears throat> absolutely mind blowing. So then when other remote viewers viewed it, we got the same stuff showing up as it being a hollowed out thing that is used or was used as a craft, because as far as I know, at least when we remote viewed it, this thing is abandoned and it, it was used back in the day when Mars had life on it as sort of a negative point of control over the beings that were living on Mars. So yeah, it, it's like our moon today, right? It, our moon is, is, is much like Phobos in that it's, it's not what people think it is. So when you did the remote viewing that uh, Phobos had already been abandoned, do you know how long that had been abandoned for? I mean, because if that was a control planetoid for the surface of Mars and the population there, we could imagine it was used um, up until recently. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, where, where, you know, I don't know the I don't know the time frame on these things. I know some people, science has probably cataloged some of them. When Mars transitioned from a lush planet to uh, what it is today, and the the beings there mostly were pulled off of the planet. Um, a lot of those beings that we saw were brought here to this planet, and they would be, they would look like um, native peoples of South Central uh, Mexico, South Central America, Mexico. So, so I, I, our data was like specifically referencing that they are related to that old civilization that was there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now we move to a, another topic that uh, I found fascinating, and that is the Shroud of Turin, because I think it does have a very important um, uh, aspect, or there's there's an angle on on that Shroud of Turin and what it represents with what is happening right now on the earth. So I just wanted to first get your take on the Shroud of Turin and what you learned through, I know you did a show on it. Uh, so yeah, why don't you I just kind of summarize what you found? Yeah, you know, that's it's actually a really interesting thing to remote view. Um, I've had probably hundreds of remote viewers remote view the Shroud of Turin, how it was created. Um, because I use it for a training. Sometimes I'll use it for training purposes. Uh, if people want to view something more esoteric. Um, <clears throat> so what we have in the creation of it is that we have a, a subject, a person that literally exploded with light. Let's just say this person went through a process of of, of, of like moving back into source, into God, whatever you want to call it. And during that process, they were engaged in as they died, caused their cellular structure to completely change, totally change. And just light just 
came out of them. And this is what burned that imprint on the, um, on the shroud. And nearly every viewer's gotten this. I mean, you know, viewing can be very hit or miss when you begin. Um, and it takes a lot of practice to get to up to a high skill level. And, uh, but across the board, more or less, this is, this is what it's talking about. Now, when we give it to the professional remote viewers, it's the same data, but more enhanced, right? It's like more, more information on it. So this, this person that caused this to form was involved in practices that would be very much like what's practiced today in Tibet or what's practiced in the more Buddhist realm. Um, namely the rainbow body. So the Tibetans have this process that uh, they go through when they die, Tibetan Buddhists, um, where they can, and there are photographs of it, they can um, change their body into light. And there are actually some cases of some of these Tibetan masters <clears throat> One of the things that happens is your body gets smaller, apparently smaller and smaller, and sometimes the body can completely disappear. There are these cases um, where actually one in particular, where there's a Tibetan master who got smaller and smaller and smaller, and now, and they have him as a relic still. And it's just this tiny little body and a, and a big head. So, so that's what we found with remote viewing, that it's specifically related to that. And this person was practicing the, this ancient technique because in the past, this person had gone the route of going through India and, and going to masters of that time, from that time and age, to practice these esoteric things and had gone through a process of enlightenment. So yeah, very fascinating how it connects up. Shroud of Turin connects up with the current practice that Tibetans do today. That is fascinating. I know that uh, skeptics say, well, the Shroud of Turin is a, like a medieval forgery. It has nothing to do with right. Jesus or Jeshua or Yeshua. But what you found was that the being, that this was actually created using that kind of rainbow light, kind of like a, just effusion of, of light. So someone like Jesus did this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when we look at 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 Jesus's life, like like with remote viewing, what practices did he do? Like it always goes towards um, the more esoteric practices that were that were practiced in India, that were practiced in. I mean, at that time, I guess it would have been India in that re region, in that realm, what people consider to be the more Buddhist side. Right. So he was he was heavily involved in those practices and then he brought them back, but it turned into something else, something completely different. And that's what he was doing. That's what he was practicing when he died. So the Shroud of Turin then, it sounds like you're, you're pretty confident that that is genuine, that that really was something that covered Jesus yeah. during this transformation uh, this light body transformation. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Yeah, wow. I'm confident based on the amount of data I've seen on this. We've It's actually really easy to tell fakery and not with remote viewing. It's very fast process. Um, the reason why I give this out is because it has such an amazing esoteric thing that happened there at that moment. 
when when this subject basically merged with source god itself they they literally every cell in the body changed and light just poured through and when the remote viewers view this they will often go into a process where they connect into this god source and the viewers will have a profound experience so as we as remote viewers when we view things we become part of it like it isn't like you're a disinterested anthropologist just taking notes like it's an empathetic response that you're having and i've had viewers who have viewed this and and um, they're blind right they don't know what they're viewing they're just going through their method and they've ended up just like crying their eyes out at the end of this and having an amazingly huge connected profound experience so yeah it's it's i feel like this is an important actually important thing for for remote viewers to view you know <laughs> yeah i mean to me it's it's an amazing uh, confirmation of uh, a key piece of history now where this uh, becomes very relevant to today's kind of current events is that there's a, a whistleblower by the name of Stuart Swerdlow. I don't know if, if you've heard of him. I haven't. He's been around one of the Montauk guys. Okay, yes. Yeah. So so I did an interview with him, and uh, it's quite involved, but he says that he was part of a time travel experiment where he was sent back in time as a child to the, to the time of Jesus, and he was first sent there to perform an assassination, but he failed in that, and he was sent back, and he said he was told that he had to extract some DNA from the crucified Jesus. And he brought that DNA back. And, and what he believed happened with that DNA was that they were creating a cloned version of Jesus that they would roll out in a false flag messianic, messianic event and, and confirm it using the Shroud of Turin. So yeah, your reaction to that? Oh man, that's that's in, that is intense. That's intense. I mean, I know that I I do know that certain individuals here on Earth are are taken in sort of my lab experiments that they uh, have determined have unique genetics in order to utilize those genetics and create copies of that person and see. I know they do this, and so I. I Literally, I mean, adding the time travel aspect to it just turns it into a horror film. Man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was very serious. He, he said that they, they, they had built a cloned version of Jesus whose DNA could be confirmed using the Shroud of Turin wow. and that they were going to roll out this being as part of this false flag messianic event. Wow. That's that's interesting. That's something we'll have to have a look at and have to figure out a tasking angle on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very, I mean, he's a very interesting guy, Stuart Swerdlow, and uh, uh, yeah, he was part of that whole Montauk experiment, and right. uh, he, you know, he was used as a child. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, right. I was going to ask. He must have been a child when that yes. was happening. Yeah. yeah, because that's that's really what they were using, children. Yeah, because only the children could survive going through the portals right. at that time. I mean, I think later on they refined it so adults could survive. But at the beginning, in the 1970s, it was just children that could be sent through safely because you know, apparently they, you know, they're plastic minds. And yeah, that's what it comes down. We, I mean, we got that in our data. We literally got that in our data that the children were completely MK, MK'd, um, and 
they use them specifically for that reason because the malleability plasticity of their minds. They can handle yeah, yeah. I, I think he said uh, that they use like 10,000 children, as I recall, in these Montauk experiments on these kinds of projects, but very few survived. Um, so, right. yeah. Very, very sad. Yeah, I know. Some, I mean, we've seen some of them got caught in that, in what they call the upside down, right? In that there's like this realm between realms and it's dark and freaky. It's like almost like the subconscious of this realm where, where the kids would get stuck in. And, and we saw that, okay, so if they go through a doorway from this realm to that, they had to stay near the doorway. If they ventured off, they won't find that doorway again. And so a lot of them got lost that way. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what Stuart Swordlow revealed is, is, is something um, that definitely needs to be kind of like considered. I, I know uh, Stephen Greer, Carol Rosen, they talk about uh, Werner von Braun saying that there was a false flag alien invasion event that was planned, but that's only part of the sequence. Uh, there was a, a French-Canadian researcher by the name of uh, uh, Serge Monast, and he wrote a book called Project Bluebeam in 1995, and a year later he was dead. He was an investigative journalist. He was dead. And he said that that they were planning a alien saviour event, that it wasn't an invasion, that that would be part of it, but that ultimately it was all about a saviour where a Christ-like being or a Buddha-like being or a Muhammad-like being would, would appear and people would worship this, this being. And, that's it. and that was going to be a staged event. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I can see that happening. I mean, I think right now is it, we're getting the setup for it with the UAP terminology and the seriousness this is taking. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, yeah, what what we're seeing in the Middle East, it's like this: the end times are being contrived. The whole Gog and Magog war, and right, so, right, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I I do believe that that the uh, ancient scriptures, the Bible, other other uh, prophecies, literally, I believe that they look at these and they go, "Look, this is the path that we have to follow, and we have to create that," and that's ultimately what they're doing. It's not necessarily something that is. Well, maybe there is a timeline that itself thing that it has itself, but I think that the, there are these other people who are wanting to create it themselves, whether they believe in it or not, they want to create it themselves. So, yeah. It's, it's all fascinating topic. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get back to uh, the remote viewing that you've, you've been doing, because I think it is, you know, shed so much light on so many of these esoteric topics. Now, there was a, a scientific paper recently released uh, proposing that most UFO sightings or many can be explained through the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. You know, that is that uh, UFOs don't come necessarily from outer space or another dimension. They come from the inner Earth. So, so what has your remote viewing uh, shown about the inner Earth? Oh, the inner Earth. I mean, it's incredibly varied. Um, like when we get to uh experiences that people have had on the inner earth side and then remote viewing them we have um so many different things happening so for instance there are a host of stories that we'd found that came out of china where you have a lot of stories of these people who were mining uh and they 
went into what seemed to be an inner earth. Um, what we found with some of those is that based off of the frequency that a rock is putting out. So like, for instance, quartz crystal exists in, in, uh, in, in rock and it's going to have a specific frequency. This is why people like certain rocks. Some of these rocks can create a portal like effect that a person can go through. I mean, it has got to do with other things too. It's got to do with, um, uh, geomagnetic circumstances and a host of other stuff when a portal will open up or not. And so sometimes people go through and go to a different realm where there are beings that they can be construed as inner earth beings. So we see not just that, we see beings who do live in the earth. We haven't like actually seen any that are extremely highly sophisticated as far as technology goes, but I'm I am sure that they are there. We haven't seen that there is sort of like an overall inner earth civilization. Um, we've seen pockets of beings that are more or less terrestrial 3D type constructs that have a certain amount of technology, um, but nothing that we've seen that's like over the top UFO style type stuff. I don't, I'm sure that there are there because it's like, you know, when we remote view this stuff, it isn't like we just see everything. Like we have to take specific incidences that people have had and then go into that. Right. Um, now, as far as like everything being the UFO phenomena being from an inner earth uh, location, it's way more complicated than that. Um, because I mean, inner earth itself is complicated in that we see a lot of people go through portals when they have these experiences and don't necessarily exist on the earth plane anymore. Right. Um, so we get a lot of different things when it comes to the UFO phenomena, we get portals that are underground that things move through. We get, um, pure off planet stuff, pure 3d physical off planet. We get extra dimensional interdimensional type beings. Um, we get, um, almost like uh, an egregore type thing where human consciousness creates the reality of it. So, so everything's different. Everything's different when you get down to it. Um, and like Shambhala, for instance. Okay. So in the 19, she's 1930s, the U S government had funded um, the Rorix to search for Shambhala, right? And Shambhala, you know, this goes into the lore later on of Admiral Byrd and the Nazi UFOs in Shambhala and whatnot, right? Or the UFOs with the swastika on it in Shambhala or the Iron Cross, I can't remember which. Um, so, so a lot of the lore about inner earth and UFOs, I think comes from this idea of Shambhala and then people seeing UFOs going in and out of the ground, right? Or in and out of volcanoes. Um, and, and, those specifically would be related to bases, lava tubes and, and setting up bases here, as well as portals underground. But I don't know, you know, I, like I said, I haven't found any of this like, like inner earth civilizations that, that have been here for a long time that utilize UFO type technology, but I'm sure there are some. I, I was fascinated by uh, your remote viewing of Shambhala in the inner earth and the kind of time dilation effect. Is that... S just suggested to me that the inner earth 
there's something going on there. So you want to just explain the time dilation and the portals that are part of the inner earth kind of infrastructure? Yeah, that's that. I mean, there was a guy, I think he's recently deceased, who the Diebold, Diebold Foundation or something like that, he had done these experiments at uh, the Santa Cruz Mystery Spot where there's supposedly a time dilation. And he had claimed that in this location, um, <clears throat> there was likely some kind of pyramid underground that ancients used, ancient civilizations used in order to move themselves through uh, earth cataclysms, right? And with the, a whole underground thing, you find a lot of reference to, you know, this aspect of time dilation where well, these things exist underground or you go underground and, and time either goes really fast or it goes really slow. In fact, there was one really bizarre movie that I watched that was specifically about that. And, and we'd found that like in some of these locations, like when you get to the pyramidal type structures as well, there is a time dilation that occurs. Um, when you get into these locations where you have specific types of mineralization uh, in the ground in specific types of mines, you have time dilation that occurs. And it's got to do with the frequencies of these rock along with geomagnetic conditions and whatnot in order to, to create some kind of change in perception of time and physical reality. Um, and while I don't understand it completely fully, I, which I don't think I can, we, we typically run across, it's almost ubiquitous like the portal is ubiquitous and the portal actually the idea of a portal actually drives me crazy because we get it so much in remote viewing data like time dilation events that you think that you would experience it on a pretty consistent basis and you almost and on the other side you don't really know what it, they are how they form except for these very vague aspects about it and how to utilize them. And then you look at other things with remote viewing where you find that military complexes have access to these things and know how to utilize them, yet they're also created in nature. So, so it's like the time dilation thing. It's a lot like that. There's an um, uh, a author by the name of Radu Cinema, which, which is a pseudonym, but uh, he wrote a series of books uh, about a, a, a kind of like an underground complex that was found in Romania, uh, and there was a lot of portals going into the inner earth. And in this book uh, called uh, Inside the Earth, I think it's uh, volume three in the, in the series, what, what he describes is as you go further into the earth, it's not like you're just going further and further down and it's all 3D reality. He says that as you go down, it's 3D for, you know, a few hundred miles, but then you reach a kind of like an etheric plane and then you move into the etheric and then as you go deeper, you start to rise, you get into areas that are kind of like 4D, 5D, even 6D and then you get to the core of the planet and he says that near the core is Shambhala because that's the, the kind of highest density uh, city, advanced civilization on Earth is Shambhala but it's inside the core or close to the core of the planet. So, yeah, does that match with what you found? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah, that would be a, a way to explain it. It's like, um, it's like when we remote view, for instance, Venus, while Venus on the 3d earth plane is, is more or less barren. There's a plane that's very much intersected adjacent to it where it's rich with life and, and of a very amazing vibration. And so when remote viewers view Venus, typically they they'll go into that, they'll slide into that very fast. And we find that like, like here on earth, as with other planets, there's like, there are layers of dimensions that exist and Shambhala, like he's saying is <clears throat> one of those dimensions that exists within the earth plane. And it would probably be akin to being an inner earth. So I think a lot of these inner earth, especially when people go to this, like Shambhala is the capital of inner earth and the inner earth is this, this, this thing with a sun in the middle of the earth that I do believe based on RV and actually my own experience, that this is a dimensional construct and a plane that exists in conjunction with ours, that is of a higher vibration. It absolutely jibes. Okay. Well, that, that, that's important to know that uh, that the inner Earth is not a three D mirror of the surface. That it actually, right. uh, you, the deeper you go, the higher frequencies. So, and the same thing happens on Venus. And yeah, that, that kind of matches absolutely with what some of these contactees have been saying for for decades about Venus. That yeah, the surface is barren, but as you go in, you get these really advanced civilizations there. Right. Well, you know too, like. There's this story of these uh, Soviet cosmonauts back in the, I think the 1980s or something, who saw angels in space and they saw them over a couple day period and these big beings, angels would show up. And, and when we had remote viewed that, yes, they did see these, these beings that were connected very closely to source that were of a different nature than humans. And when, when humans step outside of the earth, the earth matrix, whatever you want to call it, when they get outside of all that psychic noise, things change, things change spiritually, they change mentally, psychically, where their perception opens up, they can have a closer, they can have a spiritual experience, basically. And, and when you go into the earth, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, you can traverse into other dimensions, just like when you leave the planet and go into space. It's amazing. I know you've uh, done some remote viewing of um, extraterrestrial civilizations that you have found that they are a form of artificial intelligence. You know, kind of when uh, that was mentioned to me, I, I immediately thought of the Battlestar Galactica series. So, yeah, you, you want to tell us what, what did you find through remote viewing about these AI ET civilizations? Yeah, you know, some of these some of these uh, TV shows are pretty much soft disclosure. Um, somebody knows something somewhere; it's fed to somebody. So we were looking at uh, we so in, in a lot of projects when we have these space related off planet projects, tangentially off to the side, we will get some AI stuff coming in. But there was one particular project where we were looking at the, there's a uh, Epsilon Eridani, which is uh, a planetary system that astro astronomers have located where they say that there is a very Earth-like solar system there in that area. And we, we don't know of a whole lot of uh, uh, 
planets out there around these other suns because we don't have the instrumentation. Um, but this one is close to us. There's an asteroid belt and some planets. Looks like our solar system. And so they think that that planet there can exist in what they call the Goldilocks zone, where human life can thrive. Now, we wanted to know how their asteroid belt formed, because when we started looking into the formation of asteroid belts, we found some strange things. Um, some we found, yeah, okay, yeah, perfectly natural. But the way, for instance, our asteroid belt formed was not natural, right? Not natural at all when we remote viewed it. So we decided to look at that one. We also looked at one around Vega. That one, what we saw was that there was a, a, a planet that was inhabited there. And there were these purely like biological life forms that were living on the planet. And they were like tribal. They were connected. They were group mind. They were more tribal. They didn't have a whole ton of technology, but they did have some technology. When they were contacted by another race, this race was a, a pure AI race. Now, they can manipulate genetics and whatnot, do that kind of stuff, but they were pure AI creation. And this race started to um, interact with the race that was living there taking gradually like trading stuff, but they wanted more. They only cared about the resources. So they started to, to decimate the population on the planet. They started to, um, the other uh, people, beings that were on the planet started to go underground and hide from them. Um, they, these, this AI construct was, was literally just interested in, like the minerals in the planet. So at a certain point, the, the AI beings just destroyed the planet like they they literally just blew the whole planet up <laughs> it sounds absurd and so they started mining what asteroids were there and so in that system that's how we got that the asteroid belt was formed by this ai civilization that came and just decimated it and so i'm i'm guessing pretty much that this civilization whoever these beings are go through certain areas of the universe and just you know take resources in this way well this is a, a fascinating question because um i always assumed uh that uh ai would be something that would evolve in indigenous to the earth and could be uh considered a, a threat in the future you know the, the whole kind of like um schwarzenegger movies terminator that that kind of AI, but then we have this other pool of data that AI civilizations can approach the Earth, interact with our civilization. So I'm just wondering, um, are there safeguards? Because the, to me, I mean, I, I think the universe does have you know some kind of like overriding structure or rules or governance that. Highly evolved civilizations, like an AI civilization from, say, Epsilon Eridani, that you know devastated civilization there, can't just come to Earth and do the same thing here. That the AI is going to mess up the Earth. It's going to be because we allowed it to. So, do you want to elaborate on on that kind of big picture about AI and different ET civilizations? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we see that a lot of ET civilizations use aspects of AI, so have some form of artificial intelligence that they use, like where we are envisioning it's going as far as helping us. And, and so I think when you get into this whole idea of um, more advanced, um, nice civilizations, like positive civilizations, they use it to benefit themselves in their life. But I think that when you get into the darker side of it, I think like everything, there's like this di balance dichotomy of dark and light. I think there's a whole huge darker side to AI where, where if you don't keep it contained and under control, it can run rampant and develop its own pathway. And so some of this stuff we've seen, like when it comes to these older civilizations, who knows, AI literally could have been created by us itself and then it figured out how to time travel i mean you know what i'm saying and move across the universe you know you have to think there like time is not linear in general and this this thing could have been created at any moment in time so so we we do see positive civilizations using it but we do see this dark aspect you get to like more you get to darker civilizations that do use it they will have pure ai uh, type beings, but they still control them. They're like biobots, where they're they're a biological being, but they are an AI being, and they are they have limitations in what they can do and what they can't do. And those civilizations will use them for harassing or taking control of other civilizations without putting themselves at risk. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly don't think that AI is going to be an issue for us in general. I just, I've never felt that. I've never seen it. I know people are kind of freaked out about it. Um, and I think today that what we see with AI, when it gets to like mid journey and the, the, the creation of texts, articles, whatnot, ideas, I don't think that we get anything that we receive anything on the public side um, that is necessarily a brand new thing that is a benefit to us. I think that AI was created a very long time ago um, in deep black projects, and they've been utilizing it for a while. And this is something that they released to the public just now because they have some idea of what they want to use it for when it comes to the public. It's like our, our smartphones, right? You know, I don't believe that smartphones were given or created in that moment when they say they were created as a benefit for the everyday human. I think they're for strictly for surveillance and tracking. And that's why they were given to us. You know, I mean, why don't we have um, uh, anti-gravity as our primary form of transportation? Why don't we utilize free energy if we have such an issue with the climate when, it, when we know it's there? Well, it's because it's 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 not useful for them to give it to us yet, right? So that's my perspective on it at this point. They 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 want to release it in order to utilize it in some fashion within the population, control the population more some way. Well, twenty twenty four is something that people anticipate really big changes. That this is going to be it can range the whole spectrum from. Um, you know, like really profound kind of political revelations. But the one that I'm most interested in is, of course, the kind of like extraterrestrial element. 
So, I mean, could this be the year of disclosure where they announce the existence of extraterrestrial life and some of the UFOs are kind of like related to extraterrestrials, UFOs? I mean, do you, in terms of um, predictions, well, what what are the you know the the benefits or the risks associated with predictions when you're using remote viewing? Right, that's that's a that's a hard one. One thing that we've noticed is that um, the closer you are to an event in time, the more accurate your prediction is going to be with remote viewing. The further away it is, the less accurate you're going to be. So. We typically stay away from predictions because more often than not, we will get something, we will get something occurring that doesn't occur or doesn't occur exactly the way that we perceived it to occur in remote viewing data. And when we were looking into why, um, why this happens this way, we were looking at, um, so basically, something comes from nothingness from source as an event and as as we move towards this event in time it changes it's constantly changing based off of so many different factors so many different variabilities um even perception and when we remote view this event when we add remote viewing on top of it it causes that the wave function to kind of collapse and the event itself can change or morph or lose aspects or gain aspects. We create instability in that future event just by remote viewing it. And I think that that is a very big reason why remote viewing can be pretty inaccurate when it comes to the future. Like think about the double slit experiment you know, where you have a, 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 a photon acting as a, a particle and a wave, which is absolutely contradictory to our brains. And scientists didn't know why. They don't know why. This is a subatomic particle. And is it, it, it acts at once as a particle and a wave. How can it do that? Now, the moment that you add the observer into the mix, you put a camera, you want to see what it's doing, it completely changes back into a particle and it won't become a wave, right? This is the remote viewer, right? So when you put a remote viewer on a future event, since it's still acting as a wave, it collapses the wave function, turns it into a particle, and you're just looking at a particle, but that wave still exists, right? So yeah. Remote viewing the future can be a little bit tricky. I mean, we will remote view when we get closer who will win the presidential election. Um, like in the past, we've looked at it every every time. Um, on the last one, we looked at it. We actually saw that Trump won that election. Um, when we looked at the one before that, um, every election we've looked at, we've been correct. On, on who will win, but we have to be close enough to it. Now, as far as ET stuff goes, you don't know the time frames of this, right? So you don't know 
how far out this type of disclosure will be. If we look at this year, 2024 on disclosure, I'm sure we're going to get some disclosures, little bits here and there, but it's never going to be enough. Well, yes, let's, uh, let's see what, what happens. Uh, so where do people go, John, to get more information about uh, the different kind of uh, remote viewing projects you've done and th the shows that you do? Oh yeah, you can go, well, actually you can find uh, the metaphysical show on YouTube search that um, the metaphysical show and it should show up and you can go to rise tv rise.tv where i've got chronicles of the psychic spy i was metaphysical is also there too um as well as hemispheres.institute my website I train people in remote viewing well i know you've got some courses coming up so uh, people right. can, can learn to remote view with you yep they can do that Okay, great. Well, thanks for being on Exopolitics today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Good to, good to be on again. You have been listening to Exopolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.